0: This is Undisciplined, Academic by Nature, Undisciplined in Practice. I am Dr. Karee Banton, Director of African and African American Studies and Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. Now let's get into it. Uh, Today we have a very special guest with us. And I am extremely privileged to not only be interviewing her, but talking to her alongside our new co-host, who you may have heard last week.
1: Hi, Professor Pantin. <laughs> yes. Where are you talking to us from today?
0: Uh, I'm talking to you from the airport in Charlotte.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Where in the airport are you?
0: I don't even know what zone this is in the airport, because I'm pretty sure maybe I'm not even supposed to be here. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's well, not well, in the we're... because there's too much, too much going on. But it says welcome to Charlotte, so yeah. somewhere between the airplane and immigration so I think I think I'm okay.
1: Let's hope TSA stays away from wherever you are. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs>
0: um,
1: and who's our guest well, today? Do you want to introduce our guest and what we are talking about today?
0: Yes. yes. So uh, today we have a very special guest as I mentioned earlier. We're interviewing uh, Trish Starks. Trish Starks uh, is a professor of uh, russian history also medical history she investigates the intersection of culture public health in russian and soviet context and she has written several books um, one of the first which detail the intertwining of hygienic and revolutionary concepts in daily life in the early soviet union focusing in on the 1920s. And her second and third revealed the deeply entrenched social and cultural meanings of smoking.
2: Ooh, baby. We'll have to get a little bit <laughs> of that <laughs>
0: earlier. Smoking, watch <more> trash. Smoking <laughs> in the Russian and Soviet context. Um, she currently researches the anxieties around male health and vigor during the Soviet period and into the present day. She is also the director of the Humanities Center here at the University of Arkansas. So in many ways, her work aligns with all of what we're trying to do here at Undisciplined. So welcome, uh, Trish. Thank you for coming to Undisciplined.
2: Oh, thank you for meeting me in the airport here in Charlotte. We're actually comfortably situated here at the KUAF studios, so, but um. I'm, I feel for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, um... How long is the uh,
1: flight from uh, Jamaica to, from Kingston to Charlotte?
0: I believe it's like two hours oh. and like 30-something minutes.
1: Wow, so you've been in the air for like three hours?
0: yeah almost yeah Mm. i was supposed to be um coming back yesterday as i think i've mentioned to you guys i brought home my nieces who were spending the summer holidays with me and the american airlines made a mistake and instead of booking for me to come back on a later flight booked for me to come back on the, the flight that I would just leave off. So oh. it was like, okay, bye, nieces, bye. Everyone can't <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my. plane that I just off. <laughs> so when I got to the counter, it was closed.
2: Oh. oh so they had to
0: reboot me. Um, They had to reboot me on the, this was the earliest flight leaving Montego um, Bay. Mm. But, you know, at least I got to stay in Jamaica for more than 10 minutes. So that's good.
2: Excellent, yeah. excellent. <laughs> yes, but uh,
0: to the task at hand, um, uh, just just so that everyone knows, you know, Trish, I consider Trish to be one of my favorite person um, here at the University of Arkansas. She and I have, you know, collaborated,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: collaborated on projects together and she is one of the best uh, persons I know. So. I'm really happy to be talking to her. She has, like, you know, ignored me for quite some time. <laughs> that is and not so true. Just,
2: you are too I'm, busy. I
0: just managed. She's she's been busy, you know, going around, you know, uh, promoting this very, um, you know, top of the line, uh, well-researched and, you know, highly coveted manuscript. So we're excited to talk to her about that today. So, uh, uh, Anthony, do you want to start
1: us off? Yeah, I think let's start with a bit of your history. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, you were a historian of Russia.
2: Yes. I. Uh, we were talking earlier. I was going to school just as the Soviet Union was really falling apart, um, 19, late 1980s. Um, traveled over there during the Gorbachev era. Mm. And didn't know it at the time, but I was there as a student for the last year that the Soviet Union existed. Um, came home about a month and a half before the coup that uh, really was the, the, the beginning of the end for Gorbachev. Yeah. And was so. there
1: anything in particular that drew you to Russia?
2: It was something different. Uh, Something undisciplined uh, at the time. I uh, yeah. I was uh, I was from a small town in Missouri, yeah. and I had the chance to study Russian, and that seemed something different and slightly transgressive in the period. It was a a point where, uh, as I was starting to go to college, it was the time of Reagan calling it the evil empire. It was a time of oh. great misunderstanding of the Soviet Union and of the Russian people and I am I've long been a um, believer that education is a way to build bridges rather than and, and build bridges and stop aggression and so it seemed to me that the best way to do that was to learn yeah
1: I think we can wow, go on Trish. and off about Russia if you <laughs> want to. <laughs> well,
0: no, well, it, it seems like, you know, what I'm hearing from you, Trish, it's like it sounds like you were one of those punk rock kids. <laughs> You're like, oh, I'm so cool. I'm so cool. I study I studied the guys that, you know, our country don't like. And, mm. you know, they're not so bad. We just need
2: understanding, guys. I, I love that you can say that, Kari, having known <laughs> what a complete nerd of nerd-a-thon I am in real life, that I would have even the essence of punk rock anywhere near me. Um, no, it, 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 there was something about, yes, that everybody else was taking French or Spanish, or it, which are great languages, but there was something about Russian that fe- felt very exciting to someone who had not really ventured too far out of small-town Missouri. So
1: if you are, are you? I grew up on watching American films where Russians were almost like the villain in every movie. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yep. So it feels like TV. supporting Thanos these days, right? <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> well, it was also there's a, a, a uh, Sting had a song. I hope the Russians love their children too. It was a huge <laughs> kind of movement at the time to try and move beyond these geopolitical disputes and and move down to interpersonal relationships and connections i I, and this is something that speaks to us here at u of a right we are the fulbright college of arts and sciences the fulbright exchange which is this concept of building bridges and building understanding as a way to stop us from having wars Uh, and there were definite concerns when I was growing up. I learned duck and cover gr- drills. I learned about oh nuclear war. Did you, yeah.
0: have a, did you have a shelter
2: under your house? With no. The <laughs> <laughs> no, but our high school did have, you know, the fallout shelter signs. And there was a big movie called The Day After Tomorrow mm-hmm. that was yes. filmed in Kansas City. So we were supposed to, oh. which is where I grew up. So that mm-hmm. was the, the um, uh, zone zero, the um, ground zero for the nuclear holocaust, yeah. according to this very popular and awful film in the 1980s. And so, yeah, it all is kind of spoke to me um, as something that was an activist agenda. And I know, Carrie, we've talked about how, you know, you bring together activism with your teaching and with your research. And I think from that kind of inception, I was interested in... Yeah. Ways that we can do research that help to change the world for the better.
1: So a lighter question, do you think the Russians love their children too? <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, my gosh. There is such a culture of, of little kids in Russia. Yes, indeed. Um, oh, they, they love their children.
0: Trish, you showed me, like, this famous photo, well, famous <laughs> to me and to, I guess, maybe your friends and family, but this famous photo on this very important day in Russia. Do you want to describe it for the audience? Because you were there. You were, yeah. like, at the site of history.
2: I was. So, So, Kri's talking about, I, I was there as an exchange student uh, in 1990 and 91 uh, for the academic year. And as part of that, I got a chance to go from St. Petersburg, where I was, to visit friends in Moscow, and we wanted to go see the famous Parade of Tanks. That they would have at the holiday of the revolution, November 7th and 8th, the celebration of 1917 and the coming of communism. They would always have this big military parade on Red Square. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so I, I was like, I was going to go see this. I traveled illegally to Moscow, which I, I can't even <laughs> begin to think about all of the stupid things I did at age 20. But there are a lot of them are centered on this weekend. And then we went down to Mo- or I went down to Moscow, got with some friends and we couldn't get downtown for the parade because there had been uh, some, there had been a lot of unrest. There had been a guy with a um, gun on Red Square that day, we didn't know about it. But they had basically shut down the center of town. And so again, being stupid in 20, My friends and I decided we were going to go down and see it anyway. So we evaded some barriers, went through some back lots, got through to about three barriers through, got to the McDonald's that had just opened and had burgers. It was amazing. Um, I'd been in (laughs) Russia for like six weeks. The first McDonald's
1: was in 1991?
2: 1990. It it opened that fall. And so it was great because we were on ration tickets. Everybody was on ration tickets in Moscow and Peter at this point um, for every th- all, most of your basic stuff for uh, macaroni, sugar, eggs, milk. You had to have a ration ticket to be mm-hmm. able to get food. And so going to McDonald's was such a treat. So we went to McDonald's, but then we got stuck. We got We got to the last barricade, and they would not let us through. We could see Red Square. <sighs> Just stuck there. So we had a beer it was 10 a.m but what was what does, what does one do so we had a, a drink
1: it's 5 p.m somewhere
2: it's 5 p.m somewhere we're all with all of the reporters um are also stuck there none of us are allowed we can see red square and then uh sounds start coming down the hill on tverskaya street and it's a pro-democracy rally being led by by people that want change in the Soviet Union, that want greater say. And a limo pulls up a side street, and all of the reporters start running for it. And so again, being 20 and stupid, we go running towards the reporters, running towards the limo. You know, black people don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There is is a lot of white privilege in here. There is a lot of young white girl going, I can never get hurt. Yeah. Um, so I go running towards the uh, limo and- So I'll... let me
1: tip in on that, right? Anytime <laughs> I have had anybody um, advise me on something that includes breaking their law, it's always a white person. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> so
2: out, out of this limo, all we can see is a shock of silver gray hair, tall guy. It is Boris Yeltsin come to lead this illegal rally on the Red Square to get there oh, he's wow. got to go through a a line of guards and so i link arms with the person next to me we form a circle of about 20 of us around yeltsin and bust him through the line as a a force to get oh, him yeah. onto red square <laughs> we're going I'm not on sure we're gonna-
0: to
1: publish
2: this one. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait it gets stupider so we're going on to red square i'm fumbling with my camera to take pictures whilst keeping my arms locked with the person next to me and then i look into the buildings next and they're all darkened but i can see lots of guys in riot gear that are there oh, no. oh yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, that are there to start taking us away if things get out of hand. But, of course, again, I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. La, 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 la. Just pushing Yeltsin. (laughs) This is fun. Um, Get to Red Square, and they set up a makeshift podium for him. And I muscle myself up to the front of the line to listen to him speak. And the photographers all start to come and take pictures of me. And Mm -hmm. Time magazine comes out the next week, and it's – a picture of Gorbachev and Yeltsin and then me, along with three other women. And there's a big picture of Lenin behind me with an X over his face. And it says, Russians are play- praying to new gods. And there I am in front wow. of him with my, my hands above my face. Uh, just, you know, it was very cold. It clasped in a praying position. And I became... of history that day and thankfully Mm -hmm. a a healthful part of history i did not get hurt i just kind of meandered home after that Um, my friends in st petersburg actually got onto the dais with the dignitaries and were waving from the background as the tv cameras went by just it was a different time it was it was also they started firing on crowds relatively soon thereafter um Mm. it was it was a moment that yeah, it was a moment of hope for democracy and hope for change that was um, exciting to be part of.
1: Yeah.
2: And it's also weird to be a bookend, too, because I was there in 2017 for the kind of the, the um, commemorations of the revolution and... Ideas about democracy, ideas about change, ideas about um, people's voices were just being silenced completely, and so it's it's been a, a really tough thing to watch the closing down of what I saw the birth of. Yeah.
0: Wow, that is such a fascinating story, trash. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, I don't think I don't I've ever done. told
2: you that, have I? I just
1: <laughs> no. It sounds I I closed my eyes and it felt like I was watching a movie where <laughs> Where everything women do about, to- everything's <laughs> about to go go south.
2: <laughs> yes, yes. It could have gone <laughs> yeah, could have gone totally what it what was what's that? Pineapple Express. It could have gone totally a different route. Yeah. And uh, yeah.
1: Because when I was thinking oh. when I was watching, I remember there was something that happened in two thousand and eight in Ghana. Mm -hmm. We had an election where it was the closest election we've ever had. And Ghana had been democratic for just about maybe less than 20 years at a time. Mm -hmm. And so the atmosphere in the country was very tense. It felt like everything was about to go south. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching that movie, the movie that was made on the documentary. In that moment, even though I knew what happened, I watched the documentary in 2009, Mm -hmm. So I knew that there was nothing bad that happened. But I was in tears watching that moment where it looks like everything could go south. And then when the next president was declared and the whole country started jubilating, it felt good that Mm -hmm. (laughs) something good finally came out of that.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's weird to feel yourself. As a historian, you're always sitting there looking at long term forces and then to be at one of these places where it's a juncture. Yeah. Where it really feels like it could go in so many different directions mm-hmm. is um, it, it challenges your idea of causality to yeah. a point of wow, it really is it could turn so quickly and so differently.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to think, you know at a historian, we're you know we're usually studying subjects and objects of history. So it's it's how does it feel like? <laughs> given that you're in this famous um, this famous photograph, how does it feel to be kind of like an object of history too? Or to be, as you were just saying, standing at this crossroad where like you could feel change or you could feel something on the cusp coming and to be, know that you were, I mean, like Tony was just mentioning, you know, I imagine we've all been a part of that, but like as a historian that, you know, study these kinds of changes and shifts. How how does that feel to you?
2: You know, I think I think we all have, even even all of us have that feeling right now, don't we? I mean, between yes, COVID, like which has that yes. that major shift, but, um, all of these these um, uh, the. Um, all of these kind of major tectonic changes in American politics in American society, I think we all feel like we're at major juncture points as well. and so it, it feels like it feels today. Uh, it felt like then, uh, gosh I hope I hope with similarly um, nonviolent and hopeful change on the other side. Um, but I do think it, it, it feels a lot like what we all feel right now
0: mm. Wow. So let's switch gears a bit, because you know, not only did you study Russia, but you got into medical history. What inspired that interest in being a medical historian?
2: Uh, I I like to like to say that I uh, I study failure um, in, in in multiple <laughs> contexts. Um, That is so
0: important for college. (laughs) Understanding how to do, I
2: can tell, it's just like this. I tell the students, I'm not a real doctor, but I can tell them so many ways to die. Uh, And and it's the same (laughs) with, I can tell you so many ways to fail uh, at public health. The the Soviets have the first national health system. Uh, They established it in 1918. First national health system guaranteeing health for all. Uh, universal, unified prophylactic care, so preventative medicine, and they have amazing successes. They double lifespans in about 40 years uh, through largely uh, programs for neonatal and natal health, cleaning up cities, and teaching people more healthful lifestyles. And so it's, for me, an amazing success. Yet at the same time, by the time I was there in the 1990s, things had gone remarkably downhill. That safety net was falling apart. They're one of the first industrialized nations to start showing a decline in the average age of male death, and that starts in the 1960s, and increasing infant death in about the same period. And so I started by researching that beginning, that hopeful beginning where they're starting to provide health and how that works and what that messaging was and how they do the most with the least. They're an incredibly poor state early on, and so a lot of their programming for health is very basic information on how to keep a clean house, how to feed a child with nursing rather than other types of uh, supplements that are, so nursing, which is healthier because you get clean, it, you, you don't have to deal with dirty water or anything like that. And so looking at these very basic building blocks of a more healthful society, but then now with the tobacco, looking at how that falls apart um, from the 1950s and 1960s onwards. So it's this, this exploration of failure, uh, this exploration of hope and failure I need to kind add of, is, yeah.
1: some clarification. You mentioned male deaths and then infant death. Mm-hmm. Does it mean that there was no reduction in f- uh, female
2: mortality? There, I- women's um, average age of death does not decline um, in the same way that men's does because the male health is endangered by three major factors alcohol use, tobacco use, and accidents from alcohol use. And mm. so all of these are very male-gendered <laughs> um, yeah. activities. Yeah, yeah. It, and I mean, yeah. the, it is... It makes sense. There's this
1: uh, is it Twitter page called Why Women Live Longer. <laughs> and it, it's a collection of all the things that, uh, stupid things that men do that women don't.
2: Yes, and there we go. <laughs> alcohol, yeah. tobacco, yeah. and accidents from alcohol use are the major factors that they... Pinpoint in the 1960s, and it just it just flies off the rails. By the 1990s, the average mu- Russian male age of death will plummet to the upper 50s, like 56, 57 years mm-hmm. old um, because of the mass use of smoking, about 60% of Russian males smoke, massive use of alcohol, um, the uh, intake is... Huge uh, when I was there in the nineties, you used to split a bottle of vodka on the on the threes, so three people, one liter mm. one night <laughs> that's a lot of vodka um, lot. Yeah. <laughs> and so I mean.
1: I like the taste of vodka, but that's a lot. <laughs> that's, and and,
2: and there, a lot of it was um, bootleg yeah. vodka because that was another thing that was rationed. Yeah. And so, oh, no, not whoa. moonshine. Not Russian moonshine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there are so many names for Russian moonshine, but all of them taste bad. Um, yeah. And so that that they'd have thirty, forty thousand 40,000 deaths a year from methyl alcohol, mm. from moonshine that can make are you are blind you or kill it. Yeah, yeah. So it was... Yeah, it, it, it's a again, it's a great success story, and then followed by this set of preventable tragedies. Of I'm curious, people. was this something yeah.
1: that result that's led to the increase in alcohol and tobacco use? Was there a major event or series of events that led to that?
2: I, that's an excellent question, and there are a lot of debates about that. Uh, That's kind of what I'm trying to work on now. Um, The tobacco use, tobacco is addictive. uh, And the thing that stops most people from smoking is just they don't have enough tobacco production. And so it stays fairly steady that people will smoke as much as they can get. And smoking rates stay fairly steady from the 1920s forward at around 60% of males. Uh, Alcohol use is a similar to tobacco in that both products are made at incredibly cheap cost by the state to prop up the budget. Um, Mm. And that's something that started in Russia in the 19th century in the Russian Empire and is continued by the Soviets to produce alcohol, to get people to buy it, to prop up state and economic agendas. And so they basically profit off these alcohol and tobacco problems of their people.
0: So, I have a question there, Trish. So, and mm-hmm. um, that was a very good question there by um, Anthony in terms of um, what's causing this, and especially given that it's gendered, um, is it that the men are working harder? We know that's not the truth. Because, you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, How can you ask a question it, and preempt
1: um, your own question? <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes. Is it because of the weather also?
2: It's so cold. Oh, okay. Oh
0: in these things to keep warm. But alcohol um, you know, doesn't keep studying. you
2: warm. It doesn't. No. No, okay. But, I, I think but it gets uh,
1: your blood heats up, Yeah, oh?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, well, no, I mean one of the things one um, there's a one uh, sociologist who has theorized that this is kind of a a set of lack of opportunity under authoritarianism and that the uh, Russia, uh, the Soviet male gravitates towards these things because they have a certain amount of despair about their system and they have no power. And that's one theory. There's also some new theories by a set of um, analysts called Case and Deaton, who are looking at American men who are having a similar decline uh, in terms of higher rates of suicide. Um, lower average age of death, um, higher alcohol and tobacco, you know, use and what that's doing to them and calling them basically deaths by despair. Mm -hmm. And how, yeah. And and so this, this idea of whether you have a feeling of hope about your future and about your, your present, whether that might have an effect on what health choices you make. Um, And so that's what I'm hoping to do. I don't know enough about this yet. This is where I'm, I'm, looking to try and understand what research was going is on taking you that is where yes. the research is, hope hope is taking me i'm still dealing to, with dead people know, but yeah I
0: hope to 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 take it further uh, we must mention that your lovely book um, cigars and the soviets smoking on in the ussr was a finalist for the very oh. prestigious Pushkin Prize. Yeah,
2: World yeah. Game. But I lost, I lost. So, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, you, are,
0: you are not a loser. You
1: are a, a finalist. Strong. That's a win. <laughs> you is kind,
0: you is smart, you is important. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you, you is kind.
2: <laughs> so, so, it, it, uh,
0: so, so that is very fascinating that I want to hear part two of, you know, what is happening where the Russians are concerned, and you know, given that lots of African Americans and West Indian intellectuals were so much a part of that, um, mm-hmm. you know, the the left alliance um, that the USSR, you know, kind of pushed,
1: and many of them went there to study too, so it's, you know. And I must add African intellectuals
2: as well. Yes, yes. Yes, Yes, absolutely. And that's where, there's so much really good research going on right now among Russian studies people about Mm -hmm. that kind of intersection between African and Caribbean and Soviet intellectuals and part of that ferment, that international ferment. It's, there's just great stuff going on in that field right now. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, the non-alignment movement, all of that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, too, uh, It's very fascinating. Uh, so, again, we can't wait to hear more from, you know, your extension of cigars. And-
2: Uh-oh. Whoa. We lost her for a minute. Yeah, Professor
1: Banting is off for a minute.
2: Hello? Oh, yeah. there you are. Okay, yeah. you're back.
0: You you were you teach a course called Bad Medicine in um, the Honors College. Mm-hmm. What was the impetus for this?
2: So, Bad Medicine it was an experiment, um, just like it is about a lot of bad experiments. It, it was my first foray really into history of medicine. I had taught largely World Civ and Russian and Soviet history when I first got to the U of A in 2000. I taught that for quite a few years, but after I got tenure and our program changed and started teaching more upper-level classes, I I decided I wanted to try and teach some more about history of medicine, that that was what had been the focus of my first book and something that I thought would be of value to our students here. and bad medicine came out of that out of kind of wanting to start teaching more towards the material I'd been researching and so I I created that class and it really took off and then Dr. Casey Kaiser in English created our medical humanities program Mm -hmm. and I wanted to expand even more the programs I did in history of medicine and so I did a new course, a health and disease course, and now, of course, the history of race in medicine, which I'm teaching this semester for the second time.
1: Yeah. Back to the bad medicine, mm-hmm. what do students uh, encounter when they start the program?
2: <laughs> so, so ba- the, in two seconds, what's your syllabus? <laughs> That's what I'm asking. Okay. Bad medicine <laughs> is the antidote uh, yeah. to the histories of medicine that we're used to. We mm-hmm. are used to histories of great men doing great things, Mm -hmm. and there are great discoveries in medicine, and I think we're all very familiar with that, Mm -hmm. but I don't think that students encounter in the classroom as often the stories of not just accidents in medicine, but actually the way that medicine can be used as a control, the way that medical authorities have been involved in uh, in particular, we focus on eugenics in the classroom, mm-hmm. not eugenics in the classroom, yeah. but eugenics in <laughs> uh, its, it's uh, yeah, history. To, yeah. And so the class takes students into that point of where medicine went beyond malpractice or accidentally harming patients to where medicine was used to harm
1: yeah, so that would explain why will lead any to examples? race.
2: Oh, some examples. Uh, we spend some time with Tuskegee, and I think for a lot of my white students, my white students, that is a new or some of them have heard of it, but it is not as well known to them as uh, the um, Nazi experiments. Yeah. Most students are familiar with that, but I try and expand to give them ideas about other ways that it's not just this one isolated thing in World War II, yeah. that eugenics has a long history. I
1: never heard about that, and I'm a black person, until uh, 2020, wow. when people were discussing the resistance of the black community to the vaccines. Mm-hmm. And then the Tuskegee experiment came up as one of the things that make Black people fearful of hospitals in yes.
2: general. Yes, and that's and I that's students. Ha- point, Anthony. Yes, mm-hmm. and students have much more e- association with it because of vaccine hesitancy reporting that they now understand more. I think because of that, because they've read the Henrietta Lacks book, yeah. a lot of students have more of an association of how medicine is often using. Using the poor and people of color as experimental fodder to then take the material, take the the technology developed, and use it to help the rich and often the white. Mm-hmm. And so, stu- and
0: none is more brutal than our current um, um, epidemic of black maternal health. And, yeah. And exactly. Doctor Marion Sims.
2: Yes, and that's. Ultimately, right, I'm trying to hit pre-med students and get them to understand their field and where they're going uh, more fully because most of them are going into medicine because they want to help people. Mm -hmm. Medicine is a vocation. Medicine is something where you are trying to make lives better. And essential to that is understanding that the experience of medicine is not universal. That different people, different groups, different nations, different ethnicities, different genders have experienced medicine differently. And that if we want to be good providers, we have to understand the history of that um, and how to be better practitioners. If that's because if we want to make people healthier, we have to understand the people that we're um, looking at.
1: Yeah. I want to ask a question in relation to the concept of race and medicine. Mm -hmm. When I first moved here, one of the first shock I received was not every hospital in the U.S. has provision for sickle cell carriers Mm -hmm. because I'm a sickle cell carrier. And in Ghana, it doesn't matter where I go. When I go to the hospital and I tell the doctor, I have sickle cell in my family, Mm -hmm. I always get somebody specifically to attend to me. And when I first moved here, I had a... Uh, I felt sick relation yeah. to sickle cell, and apparently, the closest doctor I can get in Fayville I had was three. I have to book three months away. Oh my gosh! So yeah. if I wanted immediate medical treatment, I had to go to uh, Little Rock. Wow! Which is yeah, and so that was one of the my first experience of mm-hmm. race being was it a, a meditaya resistant to my ability to. Mm-hmm. assess healthcare in the U.S.? Is this a, a common experience or is this something that's an isolated case?
2: I, I think uh, with Karee bringing up the maternal mortality, I think we know that it, it, that it is a much more common experience. We know that um, there's research that shows that um, black folks, when they have black doctors, do better and have mm-hmm. better outcomes. And so I think we know that there are already definite factors, just not even with specialty issues like sickle cell, but just in general, that there is a barrier there to effective care. Yeah.
0: And I'm sure uh, listeners will recall, you know, James Marion Sims, but for those Mm -hmm. who might not remember, Trish, do you want to tell us a little bit?
2: Um, So Sims is... um, has been, was lauded as the father of modern gynecology. He has statues of him up. Um, there was one recently taken down in New York and uh, of, of Sims. I think it was only taken down, Karee, do you remember? Was it three years ago, maybe? Four? Yeah. It was, it was not yeah. long ago. Uh, we talk about him. In the race and medicine class, we use a fantastic book by Deidre Cooper Owens called Medical Bondage that traces Sim's experimentation on enslaved women to create the episiotomy tear surgery. Um, Episiotomy tear is a tear from the vaginal to the anal opening that happens during birth, can lead to all sorts of infections and anal leakage if if not treated. Mm -hmm. He takes over a dozen Enslaved women. Operates on them repeatedly without anesthesia or any kind of painkillers to develop a surgery that then he uses with painkillers for women up mm-hmm. in the Northeast uh, after he's um, done with his experimentation. So he's—it's a kind of classic example of this. Use of the powerless and those without privilege to benefit others, and those those kinds of stories are really very well documented in Harriet Washington's book, which we also, which I use in the Bad Medicine class, uh, Medical Apartheid. So, Medical Apartheid, which traces Sims and others who have um, used people of color or people without power to further medical science for others who could afford to pay. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so there's all of these from Tuskegee to the Henrietta Lacks situation where, Mm -hmm. you know, companies, I have friends, you know, lots of African friends, African-American friends, Caribbean friends who have used these HeLa cells in their labs, you know. Um, which they've you know replicated without. I think the family just got compensated. the yeah. other Yeah, Yes, they just yeah. did.
2: I didn't I haven't read the details of the compensation package, but yeah, I did see that they were finally finally compensated. And it, you know, with both with both Lax and the Tuskegee experiments, we're, we're often talking about a medicine that is not just using people, but it is opaque in the way that it relates to patients, that the Tuskegee men are never really informed of what's going on with their health or how they are being used, and the same that Henrietta Lacks was never cognizant, was never told what was happening with her cells, that these feelings of being exploited by a system that does not have your best interests at heart have have, Horrible legacies for care today, and that that's something we want to, again, try and face head on, try and change, try and make better. If we if if we're going to put in the effort, and doctors put in an enormous amount of effort, we want to see that effort well represented in health as an outcome. And I it, guess it's not all. It's not only about doctors. We're all consumers of medicine. We're all. Going to doctors, yes. and we need to be good advocates for ourselves and good advocates for our family members.
1: If you're not talking about doctors, I want to know what the reception of the health, uh, public health officials, and experts have been to your work and your research.
2: Oh, um, the tobacco research has done fairly well. I've had reviews of both my tobacco books in the American Journal of Public Health. I just spoke at Columbia um, School of Medicine about the uh, most recent book. <laughs> Because the stories of what's going on in the Soviet Union in relation to tobacco are a interesting challenge to the way that we usually conce- conceptualize tobacco addiction. Most yeah. of the time we think about tobacco addiction as a capitalist thing, yeah. that it's marketing and it's all of these it, it, evocative ads. And none of that works in the Soviet Union. Yeah. And so...
1: I want to believe that since there's been a reduction in all that, there's a no, no tobacco is no more advertised on TV or media in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Has that affected uh, consumption?
2: Yes. Uh, the uh, lack, of, um, lack of advertising has been seen as effective. The, the most effective um, anti-tobacco measures tend to be those that increase the price of tobacco. And that's something that the Russians still haven't really done. They have mitigated advertising and product design and those kinds of things, but Mm -hmm. they haven't increased prices. And so that's one of the reasons that we point to them for them still having a lot of smoking. Yeah.
1: Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Professor Banton?
0: Hold on one second, Trish. No. Can I just ask
2: the last question and just wrap it up? Um... Well, the, the officers are about to yeah. go break. I don't want you to be stuck down here. Yeah. Okay. So they—they
1: they found me. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, just <laughs> when we are at the, the end of the
2: down. interview. Uh, well, just at the end of the interview. <laughs> yeah. That's fan- That is all good. We're good. I think we're good. Mm-hmm. So if
0: no, if we, I just wanted to ask the last question about um, in what ways you
2: consider your work to be undisciplined. Mm, yes oh man you should have told me that one was coming uh I I think the biggest thing is that I am I, I transgress boundaries between history social sciences medicine and epidemiology that I work with people in the sciences I work with people in current public health I try and move across boundaries of discipline. So I I am undisciplined in that regard. Uh, And also I try and tell a history of medicine that is more nuanced. So that one that takes account of those that are often silenced in the record and seeing how they have experienced medicine and trying to make medicine better by bringing those voices to the fore
0: amazing thank Ah. you so much thank you karee
2: you have been fantastic
0: undisciplined is hosted by me karee banton and if you haven't yet subscribe to undisciplined for free wherever you can get podcasts thanks for listening